Welcome to the AO Spine Research Top 10 podcast with Myelopathy Matters from myelopathy.org. In this episode, we'll be hearing about the number two priority, natural history. We hear from spinal surgeons, Dr. Jefferson Wilson and Dr. Brian Kwan, and Lady Julia Carter, a person living with cervical myelopathy. I'm Dr. Michelle Starkey, scientist and director of myelopathy.org. And I'm Dr. Ben Davies, neurosurgeon, scientist and founder of myelopathy.org. This is the AO Spine Top 10 with Myelopathy Matters from myelopathy.org. Welcome to episode two, where we're going to be exploring the number two research priority, understanding the natural history, or as the full question states, what is the natural history of DCM? What is the relationship between DCM and asymptomatic spinal cord compression or canal stenosis? What factors influence the natural history of the disease? That's right. And that's one of the questions that emerged from AOSpine Recode DCM, an international collaboration of people working and living with DCM, which aims to accelerate knowledge discovery that can improve outcomes by identifying the top most important clinical uncertainties such that we can consolidate research energy and resources. In this series, we're going to be talking to experts from around the world to understand why these questions are so important. And to that end, I should introduce our first guest, Dr. Jefferson Wilson, surgeon scientist at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. And I started by asking him, what do we mean exactly by natural history? Natural history basically just implies that uh, if we have a patient that we see in clinic or we have a clinical encounter with, the natural history is what will happen to that person if left unattended. So, If we don't perform surgery and simply observe the patient over time, what will their clinical course be? Will the patient deteriorate? Will they have um, worsening in their hand function or or walking if we leave them uh, unattended? Will they remain stable and not change very much? Or best case scenario, uh, could they potentially improve if we left them alone? So, so that's basically what we, we mean by natural history is what will happen to this patient if they are left unattended in the way of treatment, um, and specifically in the context of cervical myelopathy, what will happen to the person if we don't perform surgery on them after they've presented with symptoms or signs of, of myelopathy. And I suppose there are a number of factors that sort of play a role in that. So that sort of course will be different from person to person. Cervical myelopathy is a heterogeneous entity wherein there are a number of unique clinical phenotypes. And while we can parse these these phenotypes in a number of different ways, the most uh, simple way to to look at at these different clinical entities is based on clinical severity. So we know on one hand, there are patients that come to us uh, who are very severely affected with cervical myelopathy symptoms. They may be bedridden or, or barely able to walk or ba- maybe barely able to use their hands, very disabled. But on the other end of that severity spectrum, we have patients that are actually quite well. And, you know, they may have some relatively minor symptoms, 
but they are able to carry on with life in a normal fashion. They hold down steady employment. They have uh, extracurricular activities. Um, they have, you know, they have a, a rich family life. So the the implications for natural history are obviously very very different um, when we're thinking about those um, two different unique phenotypes of patients. Um, on one hand, you know, for the patient who's already quite advanced and has severe myelopathy symptoms, well we're not as interested in what the future holds for that person if we don't operate because we know they're already about as severe as they can get and surgery is really a no-brainer. Um, most surgeons would operate on, on a patient that has a severe myelopathy and in fact that's what our guideline work formed a few years ago through AO Spine suggests that uh, people and surgeons should do when encountered with a severe myelopathy patient. But natural history really has um, the most relevance for when we're talking about patients with more mild symptoms because there there is uncertainty about how we should be treating these individuals and so it's of interest to know uh, what's going to happen to them if we leave them alone and don't do surgery. So this is kind of the nuance of, of how um, uh, natural history plays a role depending on the patient you have sitting in front of you. Why is improving our understanding of the natural history of DCM so important for improving outcomes for these people? At the moment, just because of where the level of evidence is at and you know the relatively early stage of inquiry which we are at uh, in investigating this, this problem, we tend to make decisions in kind of, I would say, almost one-size-fits-all type of approach. But there's really a role, a, a role to understand on an individual patient level how somebody's going to do. If I can get back to that more mild patient that I'm talking about, and if, for instance, I have a 45-year-old lawyer who's sitting down in my office who comes to me because his GP ordered an MRI scan for neck pain and a little bit of numbness in one finger. And the, the, the MRI shows significant spinal cord compression in the cervical spine. And the question is now what to do with this, this person. So he's sitting in my office. And the crux of, of this, this problem and the decision-making surrounding this patient is how is he going to do if we, if we don't operate on him? And if we develop ways to understand how he's going to do 5, 10, 20 years out, if we don't do surgery, then this will inform decision-making when he's first sitting in a surgeon's office. So the best-case scenario for him is that you know, we have evidence to show that he's not going to get worse if we follow him. So he doesn't have to have a potentially pretty large operation on his cervical spine to prevent him from getting worse. In fact, he can just be left, carry on life as, as normal. He can be followed closely, but we can tell him with some authority that he's not going to get worse if we don't do surgery. On the flip side, if we had evidence that we could tell this person, yeah, you, there's a high likelihood that you're going to get worse, so we would recommend surgery now to avert um, you know, this negative progression and deterioration in your symptoms, that would be also nice to know. So I think the, the, the take-home is if we have a better sense of natural history, especially if we're able to predict natural history for individuals, we'll be able to best offer surgery to those who need it most. 
but conversely not proceed with surgery in, in individuals who, who don't need it. So they can avoid getting, you know, this heavy-handed approach of, you know, sort of being rushed into surgery when, like you say, they potentially don't need it at that point. So what would be the worries about jumping in early with surgery? What could be potential deficits that, that could occur because of that? Why would you be trying to avoid that? You know, I always tell patients that, you know, the treatment I have to offer isn't like taking a medication or undertaking physiotherapy. It's, it's, it's oftentimes major surgery. And we know that with surgery for cervical myelopathy, there's about a 15% chance of complications. And about one third of the time, those complications are major. And if, you know, in spite of best intentions, or, you know, even excellent surgical practices, some some of the time, these complications are just unavoidable. It's part and parcel with having an operation. And if, if you're one of the unlucky folks that has one of those complications, you know, sometimes, and this doesn't happen frequently in 2020, thankfully, but sometimes the complication can end up being worse than the disease and symptoms that the patient started with. So this is why the question of whether or not to do surgery for somebody with mild symptoms becomes so relevant, because if you you know, take somebody who's, you know, has some numbness or some a you know, little bit of balance issue, and they undergo surgery, and things go great, and you know they're able to get back to work in three months. Well, that's a home run. You know that, that that that's that's awesome. But you know there is this unfortunate small percentage of individuals who who have a major complication, and that can be life changing, and their symptoms are worse than where where they started preoperatively, and that's everybody's worst nightmare. So that's why we can't just operate on everybody and without a more refined approach to say anybody who has any symptoms and core compressions getting surgery, we have to be more sophisticated than that because we know that sometimes bad things can happen with surgery, even with best intentions and good surgical practice. So what is our current understanding of the relationship between DCM and asymptomatic spinal cord compression? Well, we know that the root of the problem in in cervical myelopathy is is basically arthritis. It's you know just like arthritis can affect in the knee joint and the hip joint and the shoulder or the elbow. It can also affect the neck and the cervical spine. And and so when arthritis takes hold, usually in an age-related way, and it affects the cervical spine, unfortunately, the associated arthritic pathology can lead to compression of the the cervical spinal cord and then myelopathy can develop subsequently. But implicit in those comments is is the fact that most people get arthritis in their their neck as we age. And so uh, a lot of people, a significant proportion of the world, uh, if we live long enough, will will have uh, spinal cord compression. Only a small percentage of patients that have spinal cord compression due to arthritis become symptomatic and need surgery. Approximately one-fifth of patients may develop some symptoms after presenting without symptoms in the context of cord compression over, over several years' time. So this doesn't mean that these patients become paralyzed or extremely disabled, but they develop some neurologic symptoms compatible with, with spinal cord compression. So we also know that the most 
potent or important uh, predictor of, of understanding who is going to develop symptoms in the context of asymptomatic cervical spinal cord compression are, are those who have symptoms of nerve root compression. So they may get a shooting pain down the arm or focal weakness or sensory changes in the arm. And these, these patients seem to be at higher risk of developing myelopathy-related symptoms as time goes on. So what exactly is the relationship between um, cervical myelopathy and subclinical disease onset? At the moment, we don't have the greatest outcome measurement tools or ways to assess patients with cervical myelopathy, um, especially in the, in the mild phase of things. This is really where most of the controversy rests and also where the most opportunity rests because as we chatted about there's not a lot of uncertainty about how somebody who can't walk who's in a wheelchair who can't use their hands should be treated but there is a lot of uncertainty about how the 48 year old lawyer who's at the prime of his life who needs to provide for his family should be treated in the context of very mild symptoms and a bad looking mri scan and ideally we can custom tailor a treatment approach to that individual based on how we know their disease is going to play out in the way of clinical trajectory over over the ensuing years. And so that's where we need to get to. And and that's kind of what a lot of the work um, my team and and, uh, research group has, has been focused on. So I was wondering if you could explain to us a little bit about the natural history or neurobiology involved in the progression of someone's symptoms from mild or moderate to more severe. We know that chronic compression on the neural elements is is probably a bad thing, especially on the spinal cord. What we think happens is that not only are the neural tissues compressed, but the blood vessels surrounding and that supplied the, the neural tissue are also chronically compressed. And w- what can occur is that the tissue itself, due to the narrowing and, and, and compression of the blood vessels, can become chronically ischemic. And so it almost is, I guess, analogous to having a chronic state of low blood flow or ischemia or almost like a stroke-like phenomenon that's occurring within the spinal cord. With that comes lower oxygen levels. The cells within the spinal cord don't have the, the nutrients and the, the, the materials they need to function properly, and, and they slowly start to die. And so with more prolonged compression, that phenomenon increases and progresses. And as the, the, the cells within the spinal cord, whether it's the the, the neurons or the supporting glial tissues die, the neural relay function of the spinal cord itself is, is impaired, and then the symptoms will progress. And what we see is progression in the myelopathy symptoms, namely problems with hand functioning and, and balance and, and walking uh, are, are really the cardinal features of, of that progression. We, we lack definite knowledge about what factors may make one person deteriorate, say, over a decade, whereas uh, a similarly presenting patient. And that's where the whole concept uh, around defining natural history comes from, is understanding that trajectory and how it may, may differ between individuals and how we can identify that differing natural history between patients when we first meet them so we can better tailor treatment. 
how will improving our understanding of natural history um, benefit surgeons like you? A lot of this, this is most relevant for the mild patient. When this mild patient who com- com- comes to our clinic is sitting there in front of the surgeon and in a lot of circumstances, uh, this, is, this is a younger patient in the prime of their life who is facing a big operation. At, at the moment, there is some ambivalence, I think, on the, on the side of, of most surgeons about whether or not we should be taking this individual for a big surgery, which is going to meet time off work, potential for complications, time away from family. So the best situation would be if the surgeon knew at that point which patients did and did not need surgery acutely. Equipping the surgeon with with that knowledge um, would go a long way, I think, because I got to tell you, it's tough to rationalize doing a big operation with the you know the attendant risks in the face of relatively mild symptoms just on the basis of an MRI alone. So, at least speaking from personal experience, I would like to have greater knowledge that yes, I need to do this surgery now because in two months this person who looks great now may not look so good. Uh, on the flip side, I would be relatively reassured if I, I see this patient with a worrisome MRI and relatively minor symptoms. And if I could satisfy you, you know, my, my own anxiety and concerns about not operating on this patient by having a, a good piece of evidence or a paper that suggested, you no, know, if, if, I, if I watch this patient closely, you know, minimal harm will come, come to them at the acute phase and, and I'll just continue watching them and, and save them this big operation at this point. So I think it would go a long way to helping surgeons shore up, as it were, uh, their their decision making surrounding this particular form of, of myelopathy. And there are a few other issues. I mean, uh, in 2020, at least in Canada, it's pretty pretty easy for individuals to get neuroimaging. You know, whereas 20, 30 years ago, it was you know a six, 12 month wait to get an MRI scan. There's greater availability of, of advanced neuroimaging in the way of, of MRI. And so just by virtue of the fact that a lot of people have arthritis in the neck, we're seeing a lot more um, patients referred uh, with more mild stages of, of, of myelopathy. And so it's increasingly becoming pertinent. And I think this is why there's a, a greater push on the research side to try to sort out what to do with these folks. So what would be your recommendations for answering priority two? I think we need a, pro- a proper study. At the moment, we tell patients that, you know, presenting with myelopathy symptoms, that there's about a 30 to 60% chance they may get worse over the next three to six years. And of course, this is a very imprecise estimate. There's this substantial room for improvement. My, um, I guess, recommendation is a rigorous observational study wherein we take patients, especially on the milder side of, of the disease, and we, we watch them carefully. We perform sophisticated tests at the outset, and those would include advanced neuroimaging, tractography, microstructural magnetic resonance imaging, variety of, of serum blood biomarkers, um, as well as sophisticated hand function and walking tests. And then we watch these patients over time, and those that deteriorate, of course, will, will receive surgery, but those who don't will continue to be followed. What we'll be left with at the end of this is 
not only an understanding of the rate at which patients deteriorate, but also the predictors of those who are likely to deteriorate or have an, a more untoward disease trajectory. And in, 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 in elucidating that, we'll then be able to sit in the consultation room with a patient that presents de novo with relatively mild symptoms and say, you know, yes, Mr. Smith, I think you need surgery. At this point, even though you have mild symptoms, our data suggests that you're going to get worse quite quickly and we need to intervene while we still can. Or alternatively, you know, no, Mrs. Jones, the tests we have show that although you have mild symptoms, you're unlikely to progress at a rapid rate and we'll just keep, we'll just keep watching you until you know, your symptoms dictate, dictate otherwise. And this is uh, really eminently possible. And I do think within a decade, we'll be at, at this point. So do you think you've got a better understanding of the natural history or what the natural history is, Michelle? Yes, definitely much clearer now. Um, I definitely have a much better understanding of how essential it is to delivering timely treatment for DCM. Yeah, Jeff really points that out. You know, there's lots of uncertainty there. The trajectories are variable, uncertain, unpredictable. In fact, I was recording um, a symposium for NAS for this project, actually. And, and one of the professionals on that symposium talked about these sorts of patients being clinic crashes because you have to spend so much time counseling them around what might happen. Uh, and there's so much uncertainty, so much unknown. It, it makes that conversation really difficult and, and very long. There's just so many questions that often don't have perfect answers. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in particular, this is an issue for people with mild myelopathy that won't be seeing these big changes in their behaviour, their symptoms. And I think Jeff makes the important point um, about the factors that need to be taken into consideration when deciding whether to have surgery or not. And I think, you know, his example of the 45-year-old lawyer was a good one. You know, if you imagine this person with mild myelopathy um, and you're asking yourself, you know, would it be worth it to go through such a risky surgery when any potential benefit to mild myelopathy would be potentially quite small and, and might not outweigh the risk? And, you know, you have to remember that he has a demanding job, family, et cetera, et cetera. So it becomes quite difficult. Surgery, unfortunately, does carry complications. The really serious, I guess, life-changing ones to a degree are not that that common, but they do happen. And you're, and you're absolutely right in in a case where somebody's managing, symptoms are very mild, life goes on, you you really do have an opportunity as a surgeon to make things a whole lot worse. And I don't think it's something you would wish to undergo unless absolutely required. And I mean, living with that dilemma must be incredibly difficult. Yeah, I can't even imagine. And in actual fact, this is something I spoke about to Lady Julia Carter, who is someone that lives with cervical myelopathy and also, importantly, a trustee of myelopathy.org. What exactly was it like knowing that you were living with a disease that might progress uh, to the point of you needing surgery? Basically, a lot of denial. Um, there are times when you become obsessed by the illness and by thinking of yourself as invalid. And then there are times when you just push it away and say, well, I'm not going to think about that. Um, that's not me. I'm a different person from that person. 
it's the type of disease where, you know, the symptoms at the beginning aren't very obvious. So, you know, you're in that position where you're not really sure if it's just you imagining it or whether it is actually something you need to worry about. It must be strange then thinking, will I need surgery? Because actually at the moment, you know, it doesn't feel too bad. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you must have come to the point where you felt, okay, now would be the time where I think I need surgery. So what happened then? I suddenly had a deterioration and I lost feeling in four of my toes and kept falling and I had a lot of pins and needles in my legs. And that frightened me. I thought, well, I can cope with that. But if something similar happened the next stage, I wouldn't be able to cope with it. And I don't really want to go there. And I'd been told the orthodoxy is that once you've got damage to the spine, it's irreversible. So I felt that the time was now to do something about it. That's the difficult decision, isn't it? You know, when you're feeling not too bad and you can cope with the with the symptoms, but that fear of the future and, and not wanting it. And the irreversibility of it. What was your experience of surgery like? Absolutely nothing to worry about whatsoever. And had you been worrying about it beforehand? Well, yes. I mean, the idea was I might lose the ability to speak, the ability to eat, the ability, you know, let alone becoming paralysed. Yeah. <laughs> yes, a slight worry, let's put it that way, yes. <laughs> However, it ended up being a very positive experience. Incredibly. And um, the amazing thing was that I did actually retrieve some of the sensation that I'd lost. In your case, actually, this was very much your decision and very much you taking control of it, whereas others have obviously been forced into surgery because it's been left for a long time. Well, of course, that was the other thing, was having seen them and having seen what happened, um, there was no way that I was going to let it go. So before you had your surgery, um, what were the key bits of information that you were looking for or that you wanted to have answered before finally making that decision? I think about the dangerousness of the risk and the proportion of risk. I'd had one event where, which may have had nothing whatsoever to do with the condition, but where I was incontinent and I was terrified after that. And so I think that um, that was probably the thing that um, spurred me on. So, Julia, what would be your recommendations for addressing priority two? I think just making people aware of the condition um, and its non-specificness, really. So that if you've got a combination of these sensations or lack of sensations, that you ought to be thinking that you might have this condition. And that this condition could then lead to something much more tangible. Um, it's a part of the body that... I didn't normally think about, and I think most people don't think about. We know about our muscles and our bones and how they all interrelate. But something that's affecting your nervous system, I think, is a bit remote for most people. And although once you've grasped the idea, it's quite simple. It takes quite a while to grasp it um, and to realise the awful inevitability of it. And of course, the age at which you're diagnosed makes a huge difference. So at my age, I was probably diagnosed at the age of 70. Well, it's, you know, it's not much difference between having myelopathy or just being old. 
Whereas if you were diagnosed with it at 40, it would be hugely different. And I think that's the main problem, really, is to look at younger people and what the impact is on younger people, both in every way, financially as well as everything else. You know. What I'd like to know is what I can do to help myself. Does anybody know exercise? Is there some food, that, a diet that might be helpful? Um, does sleep help? I mean, there are all sorts of things like that. So I think what really came out of Julia's interview for me was this uncertainty when she got her diagnosis and not knowing what was going to happen to her next. Yeah, it's, it's very powerful to hear, you know, how incredibly difficult it is to be in that situation. And Julia really highlights how subtle the early experiences are. You know, she second guesses herself, questions whether this is a problem or is not a problem. And lots of those subtle symptoms are, are really underappreciated by, by healthcare professionals today. Yeah, and she also talks about wanting to help herself more. So, for example, you know, what can she eat or what exercise can she take, etc., that can perhaps influence her experience of DCM. And presumably getting to the bottom of this is all part of understanding natural history. I think so. And I think you hit a good point there. This is about information collectively for both the the surgeon healthcare professional but also the person living with myelopathy because together we want to arrive at a a treatment decision which is appropriate confident uh, right for, for that individual but of course how do we get there how do we get that information well this is one of the questions i put to dr brian kwan professor of orthopedic surgery at the university of british columbia and chair of the ao spine spinal cord injury knowledge forum And I started by asking him why he felt this was such a critical research priority. The surgical community recognizes that this is a major area in which knowledge is lacking. And I think some of the great work that you and Mark have done have really highlighted how common this condition is. And, and, and that it exists out there in the community in often a very undetected manner. And I think one of the real challenges that we all face as surgeons is, is what to do with individuals who we're, we're evaluating that have spinal cord compression and either no symptoms or very mild symptoms, symptoms that are probably mild enough that they really don't see a major impact on their life and and aren't necessarily really anxious to undergo a, a major surgical procedure for. And herein lies a, a real decision point that uh, I think we all struggle with, which is to say, you know, what should we tell this individual? What do we know about what is going to happen to them over time? And um, I think that, you know, it's one thing to be able to say, well, we are going to just try to follow you closely, uh, but it's quite another to really be able to inform that individual about what we really expect is going to happen. And that plays a, a huge role in, in surgical decision-making. It plays a huge role in what we advise our, our patients to actually do. And I think this remains really one of the, the key fundamental management questions. And Without really understanding the natural history, I think we'll always struggle with this question. 
uh, of, of what to tell our patients uh, when they present either with very mild symptoms of myelopathy or no symptoms, but obvious cord compression. And, and what is your sort of perspectives in, in terms of how you approach this clinically today without that um, evidence that, that's at your fingertips? Well, I think that uh, it, it does mandate a very um, careful di- and thorough discussion with the patient about what we do know about uh, what the pros and cons are of, of surgery and also what we know about decision-making and how patient perspectives play a, uh, a huge role in that. I think the discussion around you know what to do next definitely requires engaging the patient and having those discussions around you know what their perspectives are clearly you know we meet patients that are very averse to having any type of surgery uh, and we meet other patients that are on the other end of the spectrum and really just want to have surgery and be done and know that the uh, situation is being dealt with and people that lie along that entire spectrum so in, uh, in my practice, these are very long discussions that we have to have with patients about what is known. Uh, and I think we're populating some of that, but clearly there's still a lot of uncertainty about exactly what we should advise people. I mean, how might you approach this on a sort of research level to try and try and answer some of these questions around natural history? To address something like this, we need to first acknowledge that it's, it's not a study that you can necessarily bang off in a couple of years. And you need to be sort of committed to that process. I think that uh, one needs to have a very good sense of the uh, patient population and how a cohort of individuals could actually be followed for a long period of time and what the, uh, the healthcare environment and systems are in place to actually achieve that. And then um, set in place like a really structured system of defining a cohort and then actually committing to following them over uh, over many years. It's not, you know, like an exciting drug trial, right? Like this is just the scientifically mundane task of simply following people closely over a long period of time. Uh, not Not a particularly scientifically sexy thing to do. But I think that if, uh, you know, if the research community could really commit to uh, something like that, it would make a huge difference. And actually, you know, the, the patients are actually very positive about that, uh, particularly in our healthcare system. They, they feel like, okay, you know, I, I feel very comfortable that my surgeon is going to, you know, see me back in six months and, uh, and that I have an invitation to contact his office if my symptoms do change in the meantime. So I, I think that being a bit more proactive about that will definitely enable us to collect better data longitudinally as, as we go forward. So that was a really interesting interview, Ben, and I actually learned a lot of things there. I found it very interesting what he was saying that although this area of research obviously isn't the most exciting, it's so important actually when you're sat opposite someone with DCM to have this information at hand so that you can give them an idea of you know the, the information and the facts to sort of base their decisions on. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think that's right. And I think he reflects on you really need to commit time and this is something that's going to take sort of years of observational data to be able to put enough people together to be able to offer that individual information to that patient 
Yeah, and sort of appreciating that from the patient's perspective that, you know, the time course is really long. It's the fact that this time course is not a standard thing across everyone. Everyone experiences it in a different way. But it's very interesting and and important data that, that is collected. That's really sort of the point, isn't it, of this this whole exercise. There's so many questions that need answering and all of them, you know, sort of super important. And knowing where to start, you know, is the reason why we've done this process, really. So thank you very much to Jefferson Wilson, Julia Carter and Brian Kwan for joining us today. The podcast was researched by Elizabeth Roberts and produced by Carl Homer for Cambridge TV. There's lots of information to be found at www.aospine.org forward slash recode. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week for the next item, number three in our top 10 research priorities, forming diagnostic criteria. Don't miss it. Why not subscribe on your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss an episode? Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.